0: I want you to place yourself in your mind's eye right now in a market of an old world city. Maybe you've been through them. All the vendors, all the wares for sale, fruits, vegetables, meats, clothing, material, hats, scarves, all lined up in a city street and the hustle and bustle that goes on. If you've never seen one, just think of something like Indiana Jones, and when they have those ridiculous chase scenes through those markets, they're busy. They're full of activity, they're full of life, and I want you to picture walking through one of those markets, and all along the way, there are people bidding to you to come to their stall, because they have the best widget. Whatever it is they're selling, they have the best. And they're, they're going to market that to you. And they, they have one goal in mind, and that's for you to part with your money and lead with their widget. And they're all over the place from all sides. Come over here, hey, come over here. No, you come over from here. Mine's better than theirs. I want you to come to my stall. And it, you're overwhelmed by all this, this uh, alive that your senses are alive and you are overwhelmed by all of this and as you walk through not sure how to respond to any of them you hear the loudest voice that's saying yo over here i have the best and it costs you nothing what would you think all of those things that were for sale many of those that really pricked your desire you'd like to have, and all of a sudden somebody says, this costs you nothing. You have to pay nothing for this. What is your response going to be to that? Are you gonna walk right by? Maybe, maybe that scenario doesn't do it for you. Let me, let me have the minds of the children here. Can I do that, all of our kids? I want you to picture that you've just walked into a toy store, the largest toy store on the face of the planet and all the toys are everywhere, and you only have a little bit of money to spend, and you're trying to figure out what you want out of that, and somebody at the end of the last aisle says, it's all free. What are you thinking? Are you thinking I'm going back with my basket and picking up everything and taking it out of there? Well, let me tell you something. Everything that you can pick up will not bring you happiness. Did you know that? It will not bring you joy. It will not bring you happiness. You won't be satisfied with it. One day it will break. You'll get grounded from it one day and you won't be able to use it. You'll outgrow it. Someday you're going to think that's a silly toy to have. It will not bring you lasting pleasure or joy. It's not going to last. It's going to go away. And those of you picturing the market, you know it goes away, don't you? You know that no matter how beautiful the widget is, how useful it is, it will not bring you eternal happiness. And yet we're going to be skeptical of the one who says it's free, aren't we? Because we live in a day and age that nothing is nothing is free. Well, can I tell you something? The only thing that matters is free. The only thing that has any eternal value to you is free to you. It doesn't mean it didn't cost something, but it means it's offered to you freely. Many times we think in Old Testament books of the Bible and we're tempted as preachers, we're tempted to say, I'm just tempted to name every single sermon series the gospel according to and whatever book I'm preaching. Because the more you study the Bible, you find Jesus just dripping from every page. Well, of all the prophets, Isaiah is the gospel according to Isaiah. And we're coming to a chapter this morning that is the pinnacle, the high point of Isaiah. If you studied your dig and discover principles, you know that one of the principles is understanding how to interpret the genre of historical narrative. And when you look at that genre, according to the dig and discover principles, you see this line that from your perspective looks like a mountain, like that. And you start with the setting, and then there's a rise in tension, a rise in conflict in the story, right? Right? And you can see this in any story in the Bible, any story outside of the Bible. There's a rise in tension. There's a rise in conflict as the different characters that were introduced in the setting, the different situations introduced in the setting get to the climax of that story. Now, the climax is usually not the end, is it? That, that's a bad book or a bad movie if that's where it is. There's a resolution now. What does the climax do for the original situation? What does the climax, what the whole story leads to, how does that resolve the original situation? Well, in one way, even though Isaiah is a book of poetry, we can look at this as a historical narrative, can't we, in the entire book? I mean, it starts out under whose reign? Go back to Isaiah 1.1. And we'll just start back there and work our way back to our... T- no, I'm joking. 1-1. One, one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So... Isaiah's prophecy stems from about 739, maybe 740, depending on where you divide the years, under the first king mentioned, and goes to 587 upon the death of the last king that's mentioned. So from From Uzziah to Hezekiah, we see that time frame. Lots of things happened in that time frame, didn't it? And Isaiah introduces us to a lot of those things. And we saw in the first 39 chapters that we saw lessons being taught, but the primary lesson is trust in God, not in man, right? Trust in God, not in kings. And the kings should trust in God and not in themselves. And then we get to chapter 40. And what does chapter 40 start out with? Comfort. Comfort my people. And then moving right from from the beginning of verse one into a reminder that their iniquities, their sins will be forgiven. And then moving in to introduce the Christ who will come and do that, the word that will never pass away, right? All in chapter 40, that when God promises these things, we can count on them. And then a further introduction to the God who has promised this, to Yahweh himself. The one who is able and that's where the Isaiah says, behold your God, right? Behold your God. You can see that he is, he is powerful. He is able to carry out what his word will never fail to do. And then we see that he's not only able, but he's willing, and he will do that. He will bring rest to the weary, those who depend upon him. That section beginning in, in chapter 40 ends in chapter 55 with our, verse to, with our chapter today. And so we hit the pinnacle that all of the trust in the Lord and not in man, and why should we do that? Because God will comfort his people through sending a suffering servant who we have met in four servant songs, but specifically that fourth servant song where we learn what his suffering accomplishes, bringing all of his seed to himself, and we learn how that then has fruit in chapter 54, and now chapter chapter 55, we have what? Come, come and taste of this. Come and see. Then from chapter 56 to 66, we see the resolution. Because not only do we just stop in Isaiah's day, but we've already moved to the Babylonian captivity in chapters 40 through 55, but where do we go in 55 through 66? The new heavens and new earth. The fulfillment of all the promises. So I submit to you that chapters 52:13 through 55 are the climax with 55 as the tip of the iceberg. It is the tip of, the, 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 of all that Isaiah is saying with the invitation that because of the servant's work, everyone is commanded, don't miss this, commanded to come. So given that, I have two groups of people I'm speaking to and one thing I'm saying to each. Those of you who do not yet know the Lord, I'm bidding you come, listen, respond, and receive. Come, listen, respond, and receive. For those of us who already know the Lord, this strengthens and grounds our faith. It, it hammers the tent post in further, doesn't it? when we read about the gospel so clearly in Isaiah, but it also encourages us in our mission. So for those of us who are already saved, I want us to be strengthened in our trusting and in our going, in our trusting and in our going. And as we move through this chapter, you're going to see why those are so important. One, because if you're in the first group, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you come to terms with the fact that you are an enemy of God, trusting in yourself, and you give up all that and turn to Him in faith and repentance. But for those of us who have been tracking through and being encouraged in Isaiah, Isaiah, this is, this is, the, this is the point where we are challenged. Are we living by this faith and are we going according to the mission? Let's stand together as I read chapter 55. beginning in 55 one. Come or ho or hey whatever your version says it's not come it's it's hoy just to clear this up at the beginning. Remember when we went through all of the judgment oracles that ESV says ah or some of your versions said whoa that's this word and it can be used in positive senses, calling people to glorious things, or it can be used to warn people about judgment, but it is is the, the sellers in the marketplace proclaiming, listen, that's what we hear in this. Hoy, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you do not know shall run to you, that you did not know shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts then your thoughts for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my words be that so shall my words be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, there shall come up cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The grass withers and the flower falls. The Lord Lord remains forever. You may be seated. In these verses, we are introduced to Yahweh's love for the nations through a threefold description of the way to eternal life. We are introduced to Yahweh's love for the nations through a threefold description of the way to eternal life. The first description the one desiring eternal life must come to partake of the free gift of the servant's work. Look at verse 1. Hoy! A command for us to. Turn our ears, turn our attention, turn away from all the other marketers and listen to this one. Turn away from all the other vendors, all the other ones that are offering anything and listen to this voice. Everyone who thirsts must come. Come to the waters and he who has no money come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Now. We are, using, we are seeing metaphorical language here, and right from the beginning, let's just clear up that it is metaphorical language about the blessings that flow from the suffering servant's work to all who will obey the command to come. That's the setting for the whole chapter for us. So this opening statement grabs our attention, demands our attention, and starts with a command, an imperative Come to the waters. Now I want you to see that there are commands, what we call imperatives, but these are commands. These are things, these are not suggestions. These are are not just offers. These are commands. The, the, The king of the universe, the creator of the universe has made a statement and expects all men and women to obey. And so we see these commands, these imperatives. Come, buy, eat, listen, incline, hear, seek, call. All of those are commands. They're, they're, so when we say they're an offer, they are an offer that comes as a command, and if it comes as a command from Yahweh, there must be an alternative if we disobey. You see? So we're going to see the blessings, but if this is the day that you hear the gospel so clearly from, from Isaiah, and you walk away and say, "Not today. I like the widget that I have in my world." I like the, what the world gives to me. I like my money. I like my things. I like my freedom. If I come to Christ today, then that's going to be giving up and making my life not joyful anymore. If you walk away thinking that, then these blessings are outside of you. But the curses of the covenant are upon you. For today, God's judgment sits upon you and it will not be lifted. Luke mentioned this earlier, that, that we, we are a living soul and our soul will either be redeemed to be with God forever or it will, be, it will be separated from his blessings forever so that we suffer forever. That is your fate if you listen today and you turn away and say no. Now, God is patient, amen? And his patience is designed to lead us to repentance. So you may get another chance. You may hear the gospel again. You may come next week and hear the gospel again. But can I tell you? You may not. So seek him and come to him while he may be found. And he can be found this morning. So, come. Come to the waters. Come to the waters reminds us of, Jesus I think has this verse in mind several times when he speaks. When he says um, in John chapter seven, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, the rivers of living water, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they heard these words, listen to this, don't pass over this, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? So there are all these questions, but what was the assumption when Jesus said from him, What he is the one who gives the waters to the thirsty. The assumption was that what he was claiming was that he was the promised prophet. So he was the Messiah. Now they didn't know what to do with that, but when they heard these words, that was the assumption of the people. This person claims to be the Messiah. Earlier in John, just a couple of chapters in verse 4, the woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, John tells us. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Do you see her confusing the the physical with the spiritual? That's what we must not do in Isaiah 55. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is the physical well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will come, become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She partially gets it, and partially is still coming to an understanding. But she knows what this one is promising is different than what anyone else is. Isaiah is holding out to us the results of the suffering servant's ministry and saying, There is nowhere else for you to go to have soul, to have your life, your your soul have life, according to this passage. Isaiah 55. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money or without price. So wine and milk. Why would, why would Isaiah choose that? Wine is a sign in the Old Testament, often a blessing of God. And milk is also that because they're entering the land of milk and honey. So these are, these are things that in Isaiah's day would have brought the idea of blessing to the people who come. But that blessing that is being promised is so much greater than physical wine or milk. That blessing that's being promised is Christ himself and all his benefits when we are in union with him, to use the New Testament language that Isaiah is referring to. And why is it buy without money and without price? Why, is it, why doesn't it just say it's free? because it's been paid for already. Someone else has paid the price. We just sang for that, right? We, we can come because he is the offering. We don't, we don't need to gussy ourselves up. He is the once for all offering. He is the perfect once for all offering that when you f- repent of your sins and trust in him, which we'll come to in a moment, clearly delineated even in Isaiah, that you being in union with him, his offering covers your sin completely and forgives it, forgets from the end of the earth because God punishes his son. All what we learned in Isaiah 53, we cannot separate 54 and 55 from 53. All what the suffering servant did to die in the place of his people, that penalty was paid. The death was He gave himself for death. He offered himself for the wrath of his father to be placed upon him. So there was a price paid. We don't have to pay it. We walk in and we come according to the command. The one describing eternal life must come to partake of the free gift of the servant's work. Second, the one desiring eternal life must listen and learn about entering the covenant made with the king and his kingdom. Look at verse two. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, why are you trusting in yourself and the things of the world? Why are you spending your resources trying to find sustenance, happiness, forgiveness, life in the things of the earth? Why are you trying to find it at the Old World Bazaar or in the toy store? Why are we finding it in the world? Why are we pursuing things in the world instead of pursuing Christ for our joy, our happiness, our sustenance? And if you're still pursuing things in the world for your salvation, as if the way you live in the world on your own flesh can, can allow you into heaven because you're depending on your own works, well, your own works are as filthy rags. There's nothing you can do to satisfy the holy, righteous demands of the Father. But because the father sent the son, the bid to everyone is come, come. And the question is, why are you doing it any other way? Why are you still stuck at the other stalls in the bazaar instead of coming to the one who's offering the, 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 the reward for whose price has already been paid? That's the question. And it comes to us, doesn't it? And this also affects how we uh, um, walk our mission in the world if we're already a believer. How are we presenting the gospel to, the gospel to people? Uh, there's no question that one of the first things we have to do for many people is to, re, is to show them that they are a sinner and separated from God. There's no question in that. But do you see where Isaiah starts? Isaiah offers the beauty and says come. That's the first thing he does. He brings the beauty of the offer, and he says, this is going to bring you satisfaction that nothing on the earth will bring, and that's where he starts. I wonder how many times we start with that. By the example of our own life, by the testimony of our words, or do we just come at everybody as just the same drive-by? First thing is, got to get them sinners first. No question, repentance requires a knowledge of sin, and we often have to lead people there. But isn't it better to bring the beauty and the sustenance of Jesus himself first? That's what Isaiah does in the command to come, come, come. And the question is the challenge. Why are you living like this? What are you gaining from this? In our evangelism, that, comes, that leads us to a way to show them from what they need to repent, doesn't it? What are you trusting in? What, what, where do you find your joy? Where do you find your sustenance? Where does your wisdom come from? How do you make decisions? And when they answer those, that gives us the way to lead us away from the world and to Jesus himself. Well, look what else it says in verse two. Listen diligently to me. Literally, it's listening, listen in that poetic the way this construct in hebrew is listening listen it means listen diligently and it is active and it is ongoing Okay, so this isn't just a one-time command. This is an ongoing command. It, it's it's a perpetual motion command. So we are always listening. We are always listening to what the Lord says through His Word and through wise counsel from His Word. We're listening to the Lord. But this is what the the people are to come and do. You see, you see the connection here. The bid is to come, and then a challenge of why you're not, why you haven't come before. Why are you still depending on the things that are earthly and not sat? But then the very next thing that's said is you must listen to me diligently. So this is what they have. This is where they find out, what am I coming to? I'm really drawn to this. First of all, it's free. Second of all, you love it more than anything else. So I'm drawn to this, but now I need to listen. So it it really is a good idea for me to say, what am I coming to? Listen diligently, diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Let's just stop right there. All of these yous are plural here. This is an open, general call to everyone, and a command to come. And a challenge of why they're not... um, being satisfied with eternal things, but also listen diligently to me and eat what is good and eat for yourselves rich food. What you're eating right now is poison. The world is poison to us. It doesn't mean that we can't live in the world, but if we live of the world, it's poison to us. Our wisdom is turned upside down. Our our ability to see clearly is turned upside down. Our self-justification for sin is turned upside down. So the invitation is, come and feed on what is good. And we're gonna see very clearly, it is the gospel of Jesus revealed in the word. That's what we're feeding upon. We're feeding upon the true, vibrant um, word of God that will not come back void. And the command is, why are you eating that when you're offering this? So listen diligently to me. And the first, first thing is, as you're listening, you need to eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And then to say it a second way, incline your ear and come to me. So what does that say about the condition of one's coming? It tells us that the condition of one's coming is to be inclined to listen to what we're about to be told. So this is the turning point, isn't it? This is the turning point. This is the one that separates those who are coming because there was, in the context of what Damon brought to us when he read, because they're coming because they want to see the miracle of the bread, the physical bread. They want to be fed again and see the miracle of the bread. This is where it separates, because we're not coming for the physical, we're coming to hear what's about to be told to us. Incline your ear and come to me, here that your soul may live. So in the coming, we are inclining. In the hearing, we're finding out how we live, and we're, all through this section, it's eternally. So this is the centerpiece. You, if you want to live eternally, and your soul will live, but if you want to live in the blessings of God and not in the curses of God eternally, then you must come, and you must come listening. And that listening in the Bible is never just passive, right? When the call to listen or to hear, it is obey. When you hear, you're obeying. If you're not obeying, you have not heard. That's the way the Bible uses the term. So this is the separation. Come today willing. And this is for those of you who don't know the Lord yet, and it's for those of you who do. How many times do you come to the word of God with your own presuppositions and miss the truth of the scripture? How many times have you done that in your life? It's so easy to do. We come diligently listening, not to what we want to hear, but what God says through his word. And the result is hearing in such a way that our soul may live. Now, he's going to tell us how that happens, but that is the goal. Do you want your soul to live eternally with God? Do you want to be spared the judgment and have this life and the next life full of joy because you are dependent upon the one who came to give you joy, not joy like the world gives, but joy that comes from Christ? Then listen diligently as this unfolds. Look at verse 4. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you, singular, shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you, these are all singular, singular yous, shall run to you. Because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So you are being told that the call, the command is for everyone to come. And now all of a sudden we switch to these singular um, ideas. And we switch to this idea of a commander for the peoples. And before that, he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And we might be thinking, why is David interjected here? What what does he have to do with this? Well, if you remember through our trip through chapter 54, several covenants were mentioned as being fulfilled in this servant. Do you remember that? That when we watched in the first three verses of chapter 54, we saw the covenant of Abraham mentioned. Um, but if not by name, by description, that Abraham was mentioned, and our minds automatically went to the covenant with him. Verses four through eight was the covenant at Mount Sinai with the law that is given and the curses that come for disobedience. Nine and 10 was the covenant with Noah and the promises God made there, and God says, this day reminds me of that day, 11 through 17, we looked at the new covenant and the results of that, of, of the fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. And now here in verse 3, we see David in his covenant, specifically mentioned as a covenant. Look at the second half of verse 3, and he mentions my <clears throat> steadfast, sure love for David. That's, in the Hebrew, that's plural. My, my steadfast loves for David, the plural blessings of that. So when we think of the Davidic covenant, we're thinking of a couple of places to look. We can look in 2 Samuel 7, where we see the covenant of David given and the promises to Solomon, his son. And then at the very end of that covenant, in 2 Samuel 7, we we move our focus away from the earthly son, the one where God promises that if he sins, I will discipline him and bring him back. But we move from those kinds of promises to the earthly son, if I can find 2 Samuel that is flown away from my Bible, we read at the end of this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's not Solomon, is it? That moves to the rightful heir of the throne of David. That moves to the Messiah who is the king of kings and lord of lords, who take his rightful place on the throne of David. The promise is that there will be eternal king over an eternal kingdom. I want you to turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. This steadfast love, this idea, this Hebrew word, kesed, the the covenant faithful love of God. We find it in the plural in a couple of places in this uh, messianic kingship song here in 89. I'm just gonna go through a couple of sections of this, not the whole psalm. Look at verse one. I will sing of the steadfast love, that's kesed, plural, the same plural word we find in Isaiah. 55, I will sing of the steadfast loves of Yahweh forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Jump down to verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Now that could be said of David's throne, but it can also be said in perfection of the Messiah's throne turn over now and look at verse we're going to start in verse 28 now notice how this forever language comes into us and we see the shift go away from David the king to the David's greater son my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, I do not walk acor- and do not walk according to my rules. if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments that 's israel isn 't it isn 't that israel and the reason they 're wandering in 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 uh, Babylon is because they have done this, they have broken the covenant. This is what every one of us did before we came to Christ. This is what every one of us continues to do after we've come to Christ. Verse 32, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever and faithful witness in the skies." So the promises to David, the one, the rightful heir to David's throne, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus, that even those transgressions will be forgiven in that king. God will be faithful to his covenant because of the obedience of that king, even though we were not obedient. Look at verse 49. This whole psalm is bracketed with the plural, steadfast loves, Kessid plural. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Yahweh, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be Yahweh forever. So, what does the psalmist remember? They're being punished because of their iniquities. And he says, How long will this go on? Why? Because you promised to lift this through this eternal son of David who would sit on the throne. That idea is what Isaiah is bringing into chapter 55. And he's bringing it all forward for us, for us to see. Turn back there. And think with, with me with all of those kinds of ideas in your mind, the last half of verse three. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So if you are going to listen to me clearly, you will be united with this rightful heir, David's greater son, and I will be faithful to that covenant, and then that covenant be, is made with you. That I will not be angry forever. That I will lift the curse because of the work of the servant that we've just learned about in chapter 53. Then we move to verse four. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander. This is clearly talking about the Messiah. Acts chapter five, verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, speaking to those in the first century, um, whom you killed by hanging him on on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this is the Messiah, this is the suffering servant, this is the one whom God has made these promises to, he was going, he's going to keep him all the, the fruit faithful because God is faithful to sustain the Messiah through his work and it's for the peoples, it's in place of the peoples, it's bringing the people to God. And then he shifts in verse five to the single use, and I think he's continuing to talk about the Messiah here. Some people you will read, he's talking about the nation of Israel as a whole. I think that makes no sense. I think verse five is talking about this suffering servant. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. And you think, well, how does that make any sense? If this is Jesus, how, does, how is there a nation he does not know? I think this is that Old Covenant language like like we see in Amos chapter 3. Speaking of Israel, you, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth. God said he knew Israel in a different way. And through Christ, he knows his people, his elect, those who come to Christ by faith and repentance. He knows them before they were unknown in the sense that they were not loved. They were enemies of God. That's the idea that's coming through here. So this is the Messiah. You, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, shall call this nation you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Why? Because they're being called, come for all, everyone to come. And because of Yahweh, your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is exactly the language that's used of Jesus. Like, at the transfiguration, glorify yourself that God glorifies him. Or in in chapter 17 of John of the Great High priestly Prayer where Jesus says that his work is done, he has glorified you, and God says, and I will glorify you again, talking about his resurrection and his ascension. So this is clearly the work of the Messiah. People are being called to listen diligently and respond, coming up, respond to the call in the way that Yahweh, the one who provides the salvation, in the way that he says to come and you have to come. You cannot just keep turning to the world. I don't know where this was originally written. I've seen it in many places. Money will buy a bed but not sleep. Books but not brains. Food but not appetite. Finery but not beauty. Money will buy a house but not a home, medicine but not health, luxuries but not culture, amusements but not happiness, religion but not salvation, a passport to everywhere but heaven. Now money stands in the place of everything that captures us in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All of that is before us and the call is to walk away from that and walk to Christ. You say, how do you know? Are you just making that up? No, look back at your text. The one desiring eternal life must receive Yahweh's gifts and compassion, of compassion and pardon. The command comes in verse six. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So you mean there's going to be a time where he might not be found? There's going to be a time where he might not be near? Yes. He can return at any moment. Your rebellion can harden your heart away from him where you don't hear his voice. His patience is intended to bring you to repentance, but his patience towards sinners has a time limit because Christ is coming again to judge. And so this call is very clear. You must do this now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is the kind of language that is picked up by Paul when he writes in the verses that you have probably memorized in the past around, around salvation in Romans chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So the same kind of language is picked up by Paul in Romans. The word is before you and the word is near now. Why? Because it's being preached to you. It's not just that it is in the book, but it is being preached to you. You are hearing it. You are are being assaulted by the word of God with these commands to come. And the commands are not finished yet. The command here is to seek the Lord. Come and seek him. And you say, well, the Bible says no man seeks after God. Well, that's true, isn't it? But didn't didn't we already talk about that the condition of your coming is willingness to hear? The condition of your coming is also willingness to repent because it's part of what we hear. Look at your text. The coming is defined here. Verse 6, by seeking and calling on Yahweh. But also verse 7, by repenting. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts let him return to to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the command in coming, the command on listening well and the willingness to listen, which means the willingness to obey, includes seeking God with a repentant heart. You see, when you come by faith in what the Bible says, you are coming with repentance. Repentance, to to be saved you must have repentant faith and believing repentance. Repentant faith and believing faithful repentance. Both of those are tied together. They are not separate in the Bible. If you come without that, you haven't made it this far in Isaiah's gospel. You've been separated earlier when the definition of coming has been given. You're You're still the poser. You're still the one who wants the benefits without what God demands of it. You want the free things without the demand to trust in the one who purchased the free things for you. And so if we're here and you're still tracking, you're coming ready to repent. And look how it's described. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. That parallelism, right? His way and his thoughts. So it's not just the external actions. It's how you think. It's what goes on inside. As Luke said this morning, the Holy Spirit is everywhere with us. And he's not just present in the room wondering what you're thinking. He knows what you're thinking because he is God. And so the, the command is to turn away from our our ways because if we're wicked, we're forsaking what kind of ways? Wicked ways. And if we're unrighteous, we're forsaking what? Unrighteous thoughts, so by action and by deed. And we can turn that around and say by deed and action, right? because what flows out of a man's heart, that tells you what his, what his thoughts are, what his heart is really like. And so the call is complete turning Turn away from those things. Turn away from everything that you're dependent on, everything that you think makes you happy, everything you think makes you righteous, everything you're claiming for your own righteousness, you turn away from all of that. But the Bible doesn't just leave you stuck in no man's land, does it? You're not just not, well, I've turned away from everything that I put my sustenance in and my faith in and, and all of my hope in, but now what? You've got me in this place, but you don't give me anything else. We'll look back at your text. Not only are you turning from that, but let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now what did the work of the suffering servant bring? It brought forgiveness of sin because those iniquities were placed on Christ. We are saved because he died in our place. So when we turn like this, when we repent of our sin, which means we start hating our life. I read, I read this week a story about... Um, This boat that's in a maritime museum, and it's just shabby little aluminum-made kayak boat. In, in, I got to find out where it is here. The Marinews Museum in Newport News. And in this museum, this boat stands as a testament to people who were in Cuba and got fed up with their life there, and they said it was better to risk sharks and an unseaworthy vessel and everything else to escape Cuba. And after it was all done, after they floated all those miles and were picked up by the Coast Guard, somebody asked this couple years later if it was worth it, and here's what he said. When one has grown up in liberty, you realize that it is important to have freedom. We lived in the enormous prison which is Cuba where one's life is not worth a crumb where one goes out into the street and does not know whether or not one will return to one's home because the political police can arrest you without any warning and put you in prison before this could happen to us we thought that was going into the ocean we thought that going into the ocean and risking death and being eaten by sharks is a million times better than to stay suffering under political oppression Now that is a description of what we have to come to know our sin as. It has to disgust us. It has to show us that it has control of us. We are oppressed by it and we want nothing more. And whatever it takes, we're walking away from our sin. We're not just walking away from things that we do that are sinful. We're walking away from our sin completely. And we're trusting in Christ. We're repenting of that sin because our sin has become so disgusting to us that whatever the alternative is, I'm willing to listen. And because we're listening to the God whose word never comes back void and promises will always be as he said they were, we are safe to turn. And you may not feel that right now. You may feel like, "No, wait a minute, you, you're asking me to give up everything that I know for everything that I don't know. Yes. Because you must believe that the word of God is true. You must believe that what you're turning to, the promises of compassion and forgiveness of sin, will happen. There's a, there's a place in one of C.S. Lewis's novels, The Silver Chair, where Jill is standing before a stream with this unquenchable thirst. And right next to the, the, to the stream is Aslan, the, the great lion who is Jesus, the Messiah. She says, if I run away, it will be after me in a moment, meaning the lion. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. "'May I? Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly fanatic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come?' said Jill. "'I make no promise.' Said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. "Do you eat girls?" she said. "I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms," said the lion. It didn't just say this, if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. He just said it. "I daren't come and drink," said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went straight to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tested or ever tasted. You didn't need a drink to drink much of it for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. Now that's the picture of coming to Christ. If you truly are leaving everything that you know to be sure and turning to what you don't know to be sure, but you must believe the testimony of God. Because when you turn, and when you turn to him, according to the Bible, you receive his compassion and he will abundantly pardon you for your sins. So today is the day for you to come. Today is the day for you to come and trust in Christ and walk away from your sin, repent of your sin, and trust in him so that you will no longer thirst and your thirst will be quenched forever. But this is also the time for us to remember are we presenting this kind of satisfaction in Christ when we present the gospel to people? Or are we just ticking through four different laws? Or are we ticking through our, our five ways that we get somebody saved or lost and then saved? Are we compassionately and, and passionately bringing the Christ that we know, the Christ that we love, the Christ who redeemed us and satisfies us and sustains us and because more, becomes more lovely to us every single moment? Do the people we're witnessing to know that? Do they sense that? Do they hear it in your words and see it in your life? Or do what they see is, well, that person just sold me a car and I didn't want to buy, so they're walking away. This shows us the compassion of God to all peoples in the world. They just must come, willing to listen, exercising the gift of repentance, which we know from Scripture is granted by God himself. So if somebody walks away from us, it's not our failure. Our success has been to preach the gospel. But God may not be done with them. We don't just unfriend them because they they don't listen to the gospel that we have. Because Jesus is compassionate and he's waiting for people to come with repentant faith. Well, I want you to notice that this next section of scripture, which moves quickly. I know if you're looking at the clock, you're thinking we're never going to make it. But I want you to see verse eight starts with four. Verse 9 starts with four. Verse 10 starts with four. Verse 11 starts with so, tying it to verse 4 to 11. And verse 12 starts with verse 4, and 13 starts with instead. So I think all these things, according to the scriptures, are flowing from the promise that if you come repentant, God will give you the, the promises of, forgive, of your sins being forgiven and he will put his, show compassion to you. He will be faithful to the covenant because Christ fulfilled it perfectly and now you've come to depend on the one who has done that. So when you're coming and you want to receive his gift as compassions, you come seeking and calling on Yahweh, you come repenting, but you also come understanding the character and promises of Yahweh. Are, do you hear this, this brain moving right now trying to make a decision? Okay, here's what we're going to do. What we're coming into in verses 8 through 13, what we are moving into is the proof, if you will, that God does what he says he will do and a description of what those promises will be like, where they lead to in the new heavens and new earth. But so, I'm not brushing through this. We're going to stop here because we have seen... What is required of us to come to Christ, haven't we? We have seen that to come to Christ, we are to obey the command to come. We are to obey the command to listen diligently. We are to obey the command that as we come listening, we listen. And that means to be ready to obey. We are seeking while he can be found and he can be found today. How do I know that? Because his word is true and Jesus hasn't returned yet. So today he's before us. He has held out before us the sweetness of the Savior who has lived and died so that those who are in union with him will have life. And the requirement to come is to come willing with faithful repentance and repentant faithfulness. Are you doing that today? I mean, we have some children sitting here who sit under the preaching of my voice and others every single week and hear the same gospel. Are you listening Do you hear the gospel for you? Do you hear the gospel that just because you love your mom and dad and they believe Jesus, that that doesn't save you? Do you hear the gospel for you that there is a time and place where you need to turn from your sin, turn from all the sin that you have ever committed and turn to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him? Because your parents teach you that all the time. We preach it all the time. But I don't want you to come out thinking that's just big church because you are here with us. All of the children are here every single week, and our prayer is that you come to Christ. And if God makes that today, hallelujah, the angels start throwing a party, and so will we. So this is happening to you today, can okay, many of you know Jesus through the Bible, but you don't know him in your heart? You don't know him personally. So if this is happening to you today and your sin is weighing on you and you you feel that conviction, that, that, that sorrow over your sin, you need to talk to your parents today and do it before lunch. Will you do that? Before lunch, talk to your parents and say, I think I'm ready to turn to Jesus and repent of my sin and trust him. And you, all the rest of you, pray that that happens today as you go from this place. Now, for us who just need the encouragement in evangelism, I say just, but don't you need that? Don't you need the encouragement to persevere over your own fear, over your own laxness, over your own selfishness, your own life, your own patterns, all the things that you do, all the times that we miss opportunities to bring the sweetness of Jesus and the the command to come, the command that goes to all people? This encourages us. Because what does it tell us? God does it all. We're the vehicles, but he does it all. Determined from the foundations of the world, he just gives us the joy to talk about the most beautiful person in the world to us, Jesus Christ, our savior. And that's all we need to do is talk to people about him. And when we talk to people about him, we are calling them to come to him because we know that that is the only decision that they make that makes any eternal difference, and we're also calling them to come to the Lord that we serve. So we shouldn't be boring about it, we shouldn't be legalistic about it, but we should be biblical, which means we have to show them sometimes that they are an enemy of God. In our world today we have people who think they do not sin. Have you had those in counseling? Think they do not sin. It's very common. So we do have to show them that, but we have to bid them to come and what that looks like first. So let us be strengthened by this, because in the end, All of this is of God. It is His plan. Jesus will not lose any that the Father has given Him. Jesus will return and accomplish all the work. So as we're about to sing, it is well with our soul, isn't it? No matter what happens out of this, it is well with our soul if we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now next week we'll come and we'll learn more about our Savior and His character. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to You for Your love for us, for this gift of Isaiah 55 that brings us the gospel of Jesus Christ so clearly that we must come, that we must come listening and willing to obey, that we must come willing to repent. And when we do, that your promises of compassion are ours in Christ Jesus. There's nothing we do that earns it. There's nothing we can pay that will buy it. There's nothing we can do that that merits it. And Father, the one thing in life that is free to us is the promise of God in Jesus Christ to forgive sins because Christ has already paid that price. So help us to be fervent in our evangelizing, in our preaching, in our witnessing with our lives and with our mouth that you are a God that is not only worthy to be worshiped, but that all of our life is geared toward pleasing you, which brings us blessing and benefit. So equip us and strengthen us to preach well, to evangelize well, and we pray for all those who have heard the gospel, maybe clearly, savingly for the first time today, that you will do their work. You will do your work in their heart. Draw them unto yourself, save them, have compassion upon them, and let us rejoice as a body when you do that.